Hey guys, welcome to episode 71 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And this this feels really weird, but John is not going to be here for this episode. I'm still recovering from bronchitis and two weeks off from work, and Johnny is now sick with the same thing. I'm sorry, it's most likely my fault. He's really upset that he has to miss this episode, and he wishes he could be there for you guys, but... Instead of us missing another episode, we decided that I should just take the reins on this one and do it solo, and we'll reconvene for the next episode. The last thing we wanted to do was postpone the show. And please keep in mind that I'm even recovering from bronchitis, so my voice isn't the greatest right now. We didn't want to wait again because these are some stressful times for us all. We're worried about ourselves and our loved ones. And if you're listening to this podcast or the other great ones that are out there, it's a means of escape for you, a coping mechanism. And we want to be here to help you through this, just like we've done many other battles that you've had to overcome. We get emails all the time from listeners that are going through chemo treatments or they're going through dark times within themselves, and they've overcome those battles by being able to escape, by listening to podcasts. And I know that's what I do in my own life as well, so I can completely understand. So we are going to get through this by focusing on the people we love, taking care of ourselves, and tuning the world out sometimes, and tuning into a great podcast. And this episode that I have for you today is also a case of survival. A young mother whose will to live is stronger than that of her attacker. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Tika Adams was born in 1980 in Washington, D.C. She self-admittedly stated that she was a bit of a wild child, and she ran away from home several times in her youth. She had wanted to do whatever she wanted to do, and she didn't want to have to listen to her family, especially her father. So this led her to completely move out when she was 16 years old, and it was at that age that she found herself homeless. That would lead us to 1996, when Washington, D.C.'s homeless population was going through many changes. In the early 1990s, the district's government policy was only to provide general emergency shelter, no long-term housing facilities that could provide resources. So basically, they were treating their homeless population as a lack of physical housing issue versus the systemic problem that it actually was. So they were just assuming that these people were temporarily homeless because of certain issues that have happened in their lives versus helping them with the issues that they needed to be helped with. There was an endless cycle of poverty in certain sections of Washington, D.C., so it was not that those who were homeless didn't just have somewhere to live for a few weeks. It went so much deeper than that. And in the late 1990s, the federal government recognized this issue facing D.C.'s fragmented homeless services. And the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development pledged to provide $20 million over a period of five years to what they were calling the Continuum of Care. It was an initiative that worked to provide long-term shelters that went beyond just providing places for people to live. 
They focused on long-term care, like providing job training, drug treatment centers, and mental health facilities, as well as domestic violence counseling and child care for mothers who were looking for jobs or temporarily working. From the time she was 16 to 28, Tika had gotten in a lot of trouble when it came to running with the wrong crowds and abusing drugs and alcohol. She had lived in many places, crashing with friends and moving around month to month. However, as she got older, she wanted to make a change in her life. And at the age of 28, she moved into one of the continuum of care homeless shelters. She was determined to get her life together and give herself a fresh start. Not only did she have resources available to help redirect her life in a positive direction, she also met like-minded people. Tika met a man named PJ, who was also trying to get his life together. She described him as being a perfect gentleman. She said that her relationship with PJ was special, something unlike she had ever had before. The two motivated each other to do better, and Tika pushed PJ to work and to get back on his feet while he motivated her to go back to school so she could eventually get a better paying job. The two fell completely in love with each other. He had known he found someone special in Tika, so he asked her to marry him. Tika thought at that moment her life couldn't get any better. She had met the love of her life and everything was finally starting to fall in place. They were working on bettering their lives and supporting each other financially and emotionally. She was finally on stable ground. But it could get better. Four months after their engagement, Tika and PJ, now a married couple, learned that they were expecting a baby. The couple although working hard to get a place of their own, still resided in long-term homeless shelter. In this new continuum of care, as it was called, there were a lot of resources for mothers and expecting mothers. So Tika did have assistance when it came to health care for her and her unborn child. Her and PJ also received calls from several people about them wanting to help donate things to the baby. And right around October 30th, she began receiving calls from a woman who introduced herself as Stephanie Mills. Mills said she was a caseworker who worked with pregnant women in the city who were in need. And because the shelter was affiliated with so many entities, Tika and PJ didn't really think this was unusual. For the next month, Tika and Mills are going to talk on a daily basis, sometimes more than once a day. And each time Tika would pick up the phone, Mills would first ask how the baby was doing. So she thought this woman cared about her so much. And this is when PJ began to mention to her that he felt that this woman's interest in Tika and their child might be a little unusual. But she just brushed it off and told him that she needed this woman's help. And he just had to understand that they were in the position right now where they needed help and he needed to set his pride aside. But I'm sure that was hard for him to do as a father trying to provide for both now his wife and his child. He was kind of more in the position where he wanted to leave the homeless shelter and stop getting this free care because they were beginning to get themselves in a situation where they could really take care of themselves and not rely on other people. But Tika figured if we can get this help, we should get this help because why not be more steady? In late November, Mills told Tika that she finally wanted to meet in person and give her all the items, mainly baby clothes, that she had for her as the baby was due the first week of December. Mills arranged to pick up Tika outside of the shelter on December 2nd at 6.30 a.m. 
At this point, Tika, who was a small woman, was all stomach, literally ready to give birth in four days. PJ was at work and Tika promised to keep in touch with him because she was so close to her due date. The couple had prepaid cell phones. Tika saw Mills' late model sedan approach her and happily got in the car with the woman that she had been talking to for the past month. While they were driving, Mills' car started making really weird rattling sounds, which everyone who doesn't know anything about cars always really says is going on. Mills suggested that they stop at her house. She said she's been having car trouble and one of her friends was supposed to look at the car later that day. She would just call him and ask if he could come over a little earlier and that it would only probably take an extra hour or so. Tika, feeling grateful that her and her husband were getting this help, didn't want to upset the woman, so of course she agreed to go to her house, which was located in Suitland, Maryland. Tika remembered that Mills lived in a vast apartment complex. The buildings had three levels and they were all interconnected with stairs and walkways. When they got into the woman's apartment, she noticed that all the lights were out. Things seemed darker than they should be. Mills suggested that they put on a movie while they waited for the man to come and take care of her car. Tika agreed and sat down on the couch that had a very large throw blanket on it. Mills went into the other room to place a phone call to her friend about the car. As Tika was sitting on the couch, she noticed that her ankles were swollen in her boots. She chose to take them off and put her feet up on the couch to reduce the swelling. Once Mills got off the phone, she joined Tika on the couch. As the women were watching the movie, Tika remembered something funny happening on the screen, and the two women started laughing together. But then, out of nowhere, Tika felt the heavy throw blanket get pulled over her head. She couldn't breathe, and she felt like she couldn't get up. She was so pregnant at this point, and it was really hard for her to maneuver herself at all. As she was struggling to get out from underneath the blanket she was being held under, Mills began to hit her in the head with what was a fireplace poker. Tika's head had been split open from behind. She knew then, as she felt the warm blood pool all over the back of her shirt, that this was going to be life or death for her and her baby. She finally got out from underneath the blanket and bolted towards the door. But when she got there, she realized that there were four locks on it, all locked. As she desperately attempted to unlock each one, Mills ran up behind her and tackled her down to the ground. Tika began to fight. It was basically all she knew in her life. So just like she had done when she was on the streets in her teens and in her 20s, she fought. She was able to get on top of Mills, and when she got the advantage over her, she grabbed the woman's neck and began to squeeze as hard as she could. While she was being choked, Mills began to pray for forgiveness from God. But Tika had begun to get weak, and the two women were entered in a battle of wills. But who was going to outlast who? Before Mills could pass out, Tika did. She had lost a lot of blood. Her blood pressure was dropping, and she had become so dizzy that she fell backwards. Tika gained and lost consciousness as Mills grabbed her by her ankles and dragged her into the kitchen. When in there, Mills wiped the blood from her neck and began to clean up all of the blood that was in the living room and the kitchen. While well, she attempted to, there was a lot of blood coming from Tika's head. Tika was unable to move as she had lost so much blood. She was utterly exhausted. 
In the living room, she had heard her cell phone ringing. She knew it was her husband calling to check on her, and she wanted so desperately to talk to him and tell him to get help. She was feeling helpless. Mills went into the living room to get the cell phone that was ringing, and when she found it, she smashed it in front of Tika. Mills then got a box cutter from one of the kitchen drawers and sliced Tika on her side. This sent a jolt of energy through the 29-year-old expectant mother, and she jumped up and was able to grab the box cutter from Mills. However, just like before, she was overpowered due to her loss of blood. Mills then carried Tika into her shower and took all of her clothes off. She bathed the woman and cut her fingernails. Tika knew what was happening. She knew that she was being bathed and her fingernails were being cut to remove any type of DNA that she might have gotten on her body from the fight. So this was another sign that the woman didn't want Tika to come out of this alive. And this is something that is going to be really interesting later on in the trial. At this point, Tika had been missing for nine hours. So back at the shelter, PJ is asking around if anyone knew Stephanie Mills. And everyone who worked at the shelter said that they had no idea who Stephanie Mills was. So he began calling all of the hospitals that he could think of in Washington, D.C. and in the Maryland area to see if maybe Tika had went into labor. She was due in four days, so this was a very strong possibility. After the shower, Tika was brought into a second bedroom. It looked like it belonged to a man, but she couldn't be sure. As she was left alone in the room, she kept praying that everything would eventually be okay. A few hours after being put in the room, the door opened. It was a young man in his 20s. He was extremely large and menacing looking. She found out that it was Mill's son. It was most likely that she was in his bedroom. At first, she says that she thought he was going to rape her because that's the way that he was looking at her. But eventually, he just started listening to his mother because she definitely had a plan for him. When Mills came into the room shortly after her son did, she told him to hold her down. Throughout the whole encounter, Tika does say that Mills' son never speaks, but he does listen to every direction that his mother gives him. So the young man is going to hold Tika down as Stephanie Mills begins tying Tika up with a do-rag. She is going to put a do-rag around her wrist to keep her hands together and duct tape around her ankles, but she is fastened to the bed. Tika was left tied up in that room for two days. Mills is going to bring her food and water, and she would let her go to the bathroom in a bucket. As day two came, Tika began to feel her strength come back. Obviously, this isn't a good sign. So Mills had Tika in the room recovering from her head injury, so she would be able to withstand something even worse. At the start of day three, Mills is going to enter Tika's room, but this time she didn't have food or water. She had a mixing bowl mixed with ice and water, as well as a box cutter, rags, and scissors. She put her tray next to the bed where Tika was lying, and she reached over to the lamp and took the shade off. At this point, Tika knew that this was about the baby. Mills wet one of the rags and placed the rag in Tika's mouth and put duct tape around it to keep it inside. She told her that if she was in any pain, 
that what she should do is bite down on the rag. She also put duct tape around her wrists and ankles, so it was hard for her to move, and she was stuck to the bed. This is when Mills is going to put on a DVD on the small TV in the room, and she put it on as loud as she possibly could, in order to drown out the sounds of Tika's screams. Mills then began cutting into Tika's stomach with a box cutter. Tika remembered her pushing in deep and hard. She screamed and screamed, crying for her baby. She didn't want the woman to hurt her baby. She was helplessly tied up as the woman, who said she was there to help her, cut her and started to reach inside of her stomach. She thought that she was going to die. And at this point, Tika was falling in and out of consciousness. She would wake up to Mills being on top of her, reaching inside of her stomach, and then pass out again. When she awoke once, Mills is going to ask Tika, Do you want me to keep going, to keep reaching in and get the baby, or do you want to get some sleep first? Tika could not believe anything this woman was doing. Why would she even ask that? She couldn't even respond. Mills knew that the woman would die, and potentially the baby as well, so she decided to stop her crude C-section. She put a wet rag over the woman's exposed stomach and left her to fall unconscious. The next time Tika opened her eyes, she realized that it's daytime. It's the fourth day. She had been missing for four days at this point. The walls of her stomach had been sliced open, exposing her intestines and placenta. Tika was terrified, but then she felt it. Her baby was still moving, still alive, and this gave her an overwhelming sense of strength and hope. When she looked up, she noticed that Mills was sleeping in the open doorway in a fetal position, blocking her exit. Tika worked to wet the duct tape that was on her mouth so she could spit the rag out. And while she was passed out, Mills must have replaced the duct tape on Tika's hands with a tied-up do-rag. So as soon as the rag was out of her mouth, she began biting the do-rag so she could rip it and break free of it. Eventually, she was able to do so. She slowly lifted herself up onto her elbows and knees. She had to stay in that position for a few minutes to steady herself, as she was so shaky. Once, when she was trying to regain her balance, her wedding ring banged against the metal bowl that was on the side table of the bed that she was on as she was trying to get off of the bed. But this did not wake Mills up. So when this happened, to the relief of Tika, she knew that this was her chance to get out. Tika slowly began to stand. Her legs were like rubber bands, and she thought she was going to collapse. But slowly, she made her way towards the door. Once she got to the doorway, she was confronted with the sleeping mills. To get out, she would have to step over the woman. At this point, her stomach was bleeding again. As she tried to step over mills, she began bleeding heavily, and blood was dripping onto the blanket that mills was sleeping with. Tika stopped. She was straddling over the woman who was holding her captive, and she waited. She waited to see if this would wake Mills up. But the woman did not wake. 
So she took the last step over her and began walking down the long hallway towards the living room and the front door. As she walked down the hallway, she realized that she needed to hold on to her stomach tight in order to keep her intestines in place. As she was walking down the hallway, she was holding the walls and her stomach, leaving a bloody handprint all along the white walls. Once she eased her way into the living room, she realized that Mill's son was sleeping on the couch and was facing the front door. She walked as slowly as she could towards the front door, keeping her hands on her stomach and her eyes on the sleeping man. Finally, she made it to the front door, the one with four locks. As quietly as she could, she opened all four locks and slowly opened the door. The light from the outside burned her eyes, as she had been in the dark for four days. Once she got out, her adrenaline kicked in, and she began to run as fast as she could, knocking on all of the doors, screaming for help. But no one was coming outside. She decided to go to a different building, and to go up the stairs so at least she wasn't on ground level in case Mills or her son ran out of the apartment. She started knocking on the apartments on the second floor, but no one was answering there either. Suddenly, her body gave out beneath her, and the only thing that was keeping her up was the railing that she was leaning on. Eventually, she sat down to rest a while, and she waited to see if someone would come outside and help her, as she was bleeding on the front doorstep of an apartment. While she's resting, she saw the people that held her captive and brutalized her on the ground level below. They were looking for her. She heard them yelling to each other. Mills and her son had separated to try and find her. Within minutes, Mills' son spotted Tika on the landing above. She was sitting on the second floor. He yelled to his mother that he had found her, and the two ran up the stairs where Tika was. Mills got behind her, and her son grabbed the bleeding woman's legs, as they were attempting to bring her back into their apartment. Tika began kicking and screaming and fighting to get away from the duo. Just as it seemed that Tika's fate was sealed a second time, she was saved. A man began walking up the apartment complex stairs. He sees what is going on, and he asks the mother and son what's happening. Mills tells the man that Tika is just delirious from having a miscarriage, and that they're trying to help her. Tika is screaming at the man that she needs help and that she has been cut really badly. The man, unsure of the situation, tells them all that he doesn't know what's happening, but he's going to call the police. Now, this takes an incredible amount of courage from this man because this is a very unusual situation. Mills and her son are very intimidating based solely on their physical features. So this man was kind of left alone with this helpless woman. And for him to decide to act is very courageous. And it's at this point that the man's on the phone and all of this yelling and screaming is happening that a lot of people start coming out of the complex. It seemed that people had been watching this take place and not really helping out at all. There was no other phone calls placed to 911 at this time. And this is something that goes back to psychology. And this is called the bystander effect. We know this with the Kitty Genovese case where a woman was being stabbed. Everyone in her apartment complex 
was basically listening to this. Some people had seen it happen and nobody did anything about it. And the woman's attacker actually came back a second time and killed the woman. And it seemed that Tika was going through this same thing where people did not want to get involved. And at the same time, they thought that somebody else would intervene so they wouldn't have to. So luckily enough for Tika, this one man, he he does intervene and he helps her get out of this situation. While the man is on the phone with 911, Mills and her son are going to run away. The 911 operator tells the man to stay with Tika until they got there. And he did. Once the first responders were able to get there, Tika was fading in and out of consciousness. When she was awake, the only thing she was doing was asking if her baby was still alive. Once put in the ambulance, Tika finally passed out. She didn't wake up again until she was in the hospital. When she woke up, she saw her husband staring down at her. You're in the hospital, Tika, he said. She looked down and saw that her stomach was flat and covered in bandages. She panicked. Don't worry, her husband said. We have a beautiful baby girl now. Tika's daughter was born through a C-section under the care of doctors. Her and her husband chose to name their daughter Miracle Sky. Tika still says that seeing her daughter was the best day of her life. A few days into Tika's hospital stay, detectives working her case showed her a lineup. She was easily able to point out Stephanie Mills and her son. But the detectives told her that everything that she knew about Mills was a lie. Her name was not Stephanie Mills. It was Veronica Deramos. She was a mother of four who had previously served time in jail for forgery and identity fraud. It seemed, however, the fraud she was trying to get away with at this point was far worse. Deramos had a boyfriend, and she was desperately trying to hold on to him. She told the man that she was pregnant, and by December of 2009, Deramus's boyfriend and many members of her family believed that the woman was about to give birth. Now, they hadn't seen her in quite some time, so they didn't actually ever physically see her be pregnant, so she never physically faked this pregnancy, but over the phone, she told everyone that she was pregnant. It was never clear what Deramus's full plan was or if there was one. But she was a very dangerous and unstable woman who was backed into a corner, and unfortunately Tika Adams was caught in the middle. Veronica Deramus was never charged with attempted murder. Although her actions could have killed Tika, there was never an intent to kill. Actually, to the contrary, there was a need to keep her alive for the sake of the baby. Of course, we do not know what the plan was after the baby was delivered. Because Tika escaped and was able to survive, we'll never know. And that was what was working against the prosecutors, because they knew that they couldn't charge her with attempted murder because there was no intent there. So they knew they could get the maximum amount of sentencing um, from charging her with something else. Deramus was charged with and convicted of first-degree assault and kidnapping. She received a 25-year sentence. Her son was not charged as the police and prosecuting attorneys believed that he did not fully understand the actions of his mother. 
So this leads us to believe that there was a level of mental incapacitation when it comes to the son. We don't know what level that was because um, the court case files didn't state this, but what I'm thinking is that he testified against his mother who was mentally unstable and from everything I've read, most likely abusive to the boy himself who was mentally incapacitated. The one thing that prosecutors did have on their side was the account of Tika Adams. And because of her strength, she was very lucid during most of the attack. So her story was very detailed. And this was really what was able to put the conviction in against Aramos. Tika and her husband were able to eventually buy a house and raise their beautiful family together. Tika did face her attacker in court, and she even brought her young child with her to show the resilience of them both. She said that the event was horrific, but it did allow her to reconnect with her family, her father in particular. Um, her father stood by her side the entire trial and was very vocal in what had happened to his daughter and how grateful he was that she was still alive. Tika has gone on to give several interviews. I'm sure a few of you have seen her on the investigation discovery shows. She's very detailed about what takes place to her and her strength is very evident, not just through this attack, but kind of about her whole entire life. And she even brings some comedy to what took place. So she is a really entertaining storyteller. So I really do suggest that you guys go out and watch the shows that do feature Tika Adams because they're great and she's an amazing woman. Um, some of the best things that kind of like got sent out there was when Deramos, who she knew as Mills at the time, the movie she put in that like DVD player was Michael Jackson's This Is It. And Tika Adams is very vocal about how much she doesn't like Michael Jackson. So that the whole time she was going through this experience, not only was she being tortured, but she was having to listen to somebody she doesn't like to listen to. So she's definitely a very feisty woman and her strength is very evident. And it's just a really nice ending to a horrible story. But again, it shows the human resilience. And hats off to Tika Adams for surviving that and the man who intervened and actually called 911. Okay, guys, this brings an end to episode 72. We really hope you enjoyed it. I know this was kind of a short one, but it's hard doing this solo, and I really miss John. I can't wait for him to be back for the next episode. The next case we're doing is a really big one. I've been waiting for a specific true crime book to come out now for about a year, and it was just released, and I'm devouring it currently, and that is the next episode that we plan on doing. My school is on home instruction, I guess you can call it, so I kind of am working from home until further notice, obviously, because of the state of emergency that has been issued for New Jersey, um, so it gives me a lot of time to work on the podcast. All right, guys, until next time, bye.